Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. First Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 19. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and encouragement. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And, and Lord, there are times in Scripture that we come to passages that are difficult to understand, difficult to work through. So Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes, uh, that we may understand what your word truly says here. And Father, we only desire to honor you in what we believe about what Scripture says. So, so guide us this morning as we walk through these verses and show us, Lord, your truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. As we walk through the passage this morning, it is my intention to properly unravel a pretty difficult text. And a text that is too often taken out of context um, to the point that this genuine spiritual gift is abused and misused, uh, certainly within the Corinthian church that we're studying, but also um, in churches today. Last week, we took the time to explain vital historical text as we looked at Pentecost, and we saw how it was a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Babel was a result of God judging the nations, and He scattered them, and He confused their language. So it was, it was to scatter and confuse. At Pentecost, and the similar occurrences following in Acts, God gathered uh, first the Jews, then the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles, and He unified them into one body, the body of Christ. The purpose of the gift of tongues at that point was to spread the gospel. So to clarify, biblically speaking, tongues are simply languages or various dialects. We just sang it in a song, a song every tongue, every tribe, every nation, okay? So there's a, there's a connection to the tongue. It just means tongue, and, and so it means languages. Uh, their purpose was to communicate with one another for the purpose of understanding and unity. At Babel, they had understanding and unity. The world had one, all men had one single language. God confused their languages and scattered them. And so we see the opposite of that. But their purpose, the purpose of languages, just languages alone, was for understanding and unity. Now, the spiritual gift of tongues was a supernatural sign gift, which Paul flat out states in verse 22. If you look down there, he says it's a sign gift. It was for the early church for speaking or interpreting known languages in the power of the Holy Spirit. Whereas a pagan tongue was the common practice 
of uh, Greco-Roman pagans, okay? That is a historical fact. And last week I walked you through some of those accounts. It's documented by historians, by poets, philosophers like Plato, uh, through history as far back as 1100 B.C. And in the mildest pagan form of this glossolalia, this speaking in tongues, was when a person prayed in a repetitive fashion using unintelligible sounds and phrases, okay? And although they did not understand what they were saying, they believed that they were speaking to a god, a deity, all right? And if you remember in Matthew 6, 7, Matthew 6, 7, Jesus said, when you pray, do not use vain or meaningless repetition. And that word meaningless or vain in Greek is batalog aset, okay? I probably butchered that, but it's on the screen so you can see why. And here's what I learned about this actual word, okay? Uh, Logeo is the word to speak, from which we get the word logos, which means word, all right? And then, I promise you, I'm not making this up. Um, The prefix is bata, and the word bata in Greek is not even a word, it's what we call in English an onomatopoeia. How many of you guys know, remember, what an onomatopoeia is? It's, it's when we spell out a sound. So in other words, the, the heli- helicopter goes chuffa, 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 or my neck went crack, or the baby cried wah, wah, or the bomb went boom, okay? Those are, those are how we spell sounds. So in the literal Greek there in Matthew 6, 7, Jesus is actually saying, when you pray, do not just repeat bata, 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 bata. Or, in other words, do not pray chuffa, chuffa, wah, wah, crack, crack, boom. All right? You don't just pray using sounds. Uh, Jesus said, he says it in the verse, that is what the pagans do. That's how the pagans pray. So that pagan form of prayer was very, very common in this Greco-Roman society. And having been entrenched in that form of worship... This is what the Corinthian Christians came out of. And they struggled to let that form of worship go. And when taken to the extreme, this this counterfeit ecstatic worship, or known as ecstasy worship, was called that because it was completely fleshly, a total lack of restraint emotionally, to the point that those engaged in it would actually lose control of themselves in various ways, and these so-called deities would manifest through them. We see it in other forms of, um, in other forms of uh, practices today, religious practices. For instance, uh, what is known as kundalini yoga. They have this thing that they call the awakening. You do this yoga to a point. You're actually in put, putting your body in the poses of, of deities. And at some point, what happens is this kundalini awakening and something takes over your body and they call it joy or bliss. But it's ecstasy. It's the same exact thing that we see taking place today. But in short, opening themselves up to deities just means that they were opening themselves up to demons. And the result was chaotic. It was unrestrained and confusing to anyone witnessing it. And and honestly, folks, it's spiritually perilous. So in contrast, when we look at the purpose of the genuine spiritual gift of tongues, the purpose was threefold. Remember, it was in fact under the control of the Holy Spirit. It was under the control of the Holy Spirit. These weren't just 
people making up words in their own brain or their own power, okay? Sounds and noises. So first, in the early church, it was used to communicate the gospel clearly in various languages so that it would be spread to all nations. Very simple, straightforward purpose for the use of the spiritual gift of tongues. Second, it was a sign gift for the Jewish Christian leaders affirming that God was now extending the gospel of grace to the Samaritans and then uh, by extension to the Gentile nations as well. Again, to, to gather them together, to unify them in the body, in Christ's body. And then third, prior to having the entirety of the Bible, it's important to understand, it was a sign gift validating that new revelation within the early church was indeed from God. And in communicating His Word in that miraculous supernatural fashion, the body was edified because they were certain that it was God doing it. They, they, they knew that it wasn't some uh, demonic presence, but it was in fact God because it was done in an orderly and unifying and understood way. Nod your head if you're following me. Okay, all right. So in this passage, however, we find that the Corinthian church has been engaged in abuse and misuse of this genuine spiritual gift of tongues. And instead, many had reverted back to their pagan form of ecstatic worship practices that they were, and they were bringing that stuff into the church and then they were claiming, attributing it to the Holy Spirit doing it, okay? So Paul is writing this section of his letter to set them straight. As this passage regarding tongues unfolds, we'll see three things that I want you to kind of pay attention to in the next few weeks. And you'll see that in the, in the passage, the whole length of the passage, it's pretty obvious. And so you can reference these things if you want to write them down. The priority of the gift of tongues in the church. The priority of the gift of tongues in the church. The point of the gift of tongues in the church. And the process of the gift of tongues in the church. It was orderly. There was, it had a priority. It had a purpose and a point, And there was a process by which Paul instructs that it should unfold. So just as we looked at the historical context of languages and the gift of tongues last week uh, for understanding, to try to understand more deeply, we went all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. We went back to Mount Sinai where the fire rested on the mountain. We talked about the fire and the smoke. If you weren't here, go back and listen to that message. It's really important to understand why the flames of fire were over the heads of the apostles at Pentecost, and then they began to speak with these other tongues, okay? So this week, it's imperative that we begin by recognizing the immediate context of our passage because we can learn a lot from the immediate context in and of itself. First of all, this is the only place in the New Testament that the gift of tongues is mentioned besides Pentecost and those few following accounts in the book of Acts. This gift was active in the early church period to serve a purpose as the foundation of the church was laid. It was not to set a pattern of salvation as many would claim today, the baptism of the Holy Spirit followed by the gift of speaking in tongues. This was not setting a pattern. We never saw that again. And even in the book of Acts, everyone who accepted Christ, we didn't see that same pattern. It was specifically pointed at people groups, the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles. And, and we saw, and then later on in the very last occurrence were these disciples of John the Baptist who hadn't even 
uh, really accepted Christ and what he, his work on the cross. They were still baptizing in, in John's repentance. The repentance of repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. But you see, now after Christ came and died and was resurrected and ascended, there was a whole new thing. Okay, And so those disciples believed and they received the Holy Spirit just like at Pentecost as a sign. And each account happened the same way for the same purpose. There is no biblical mention of genuine tongues used in any other way or form. There are verses, of course, that are taken out of context, and we've all been guilty of this, every single one of us. Most of the time, it's in our own ignorance, and I'm not saying that in a mean way. I'm just saying we just didn't know, or we've been taught a certain way. And so we just, we just go by what we've been taught. But they use these proof texts, uh, but there's never a mention in Scripture of a private prayer language that the devil can't hear, and that's the assertion. Okay. Second, the immediate context, what comes before this passage and what comes after this whole passage is written to the entire church, to the assembly, to inform the local believers of how to conduct themselves in the gathering of the church. It's a corporate charge to be biblical and not cultural, to come out of the world, to come out of paganism. And so this was this constant struggle back and forth of these, these Corinthian believers. This is not instruction on how to have a private prayer language and to use this passage of actual rebuke to promote uh, some form of uh, instruction on how to have a private prayer language is actually dishonoring to the text because you're ripping it out of its context. The point is that they are acting as the pagans did. Prayer as an ecstatic manifestation to edify their flesh and to be puffed up, to be edified or built up in a negative sense, not a positive sense. So they were counterf counterfeiting the true gift of speaking in tongues using their version as a singular self-edifying gift. All right, The church at Corinth had used it in such a way that it resembled what took place at the Tower of Babel, and it was a cause of confusion and chaos and and Paul says, unloving to the body, to the brothers and sisters. And scripturally, the context tells us that the gift of tongues is always a sign for understanding, as I said, to unify the body of Christ. Third, 1 Corinthians is for the purpose of rebuke. As I mentioned again, it's for the purpose of rebuking the church at Corinth. Every single aspect of this rebuke in some way was reflected what was happening in the pagan culture around them in the city of Corinth. They refused to be called out and separate themselves from the world, from the ways of the Corinthian society, and this seeped into the local church. And if you look at chapters 1 through 4, they were prioritizing human philosophies over the gospel, and there were factions as they aligned themselves with certain men, like these celebrity preachers. They'd say, well, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and they aligned themselves with these men. That was completely wrong, and Paul rebuked them for it. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul rebukes them for their sexual immorality and for suing each other in court. He said that should not take place in the body of Christ, and he gives instruction on how not to do that or why we shouldn't do that. In chapter 7, they had retained many of the pagan marriage practices. Paul had to straighten them out on that. And in chapter 8 through 10, they were engaged in idolatry, in sacrifices, pagan feasts, and using their freedom, their Christian liberty, in an unloving way, causing their brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. 
In chapter 11, we find that women in the church were engaging in pagan feminist movements, disrupting and disrespecting God's created order. In addition, the members had become selfish and unloving, abusing the Lord's Supper by engaging in drunkenness and gluttony in the house of God, and Paul called it drinking the cup of demons. Drinking the cup of demons. In chapter 12, they were jealous for the more visible, showy gifts of the Spirit. By the way, the word gifts is not even in the text. If you notice in your, in your Bible, it's in italics. It's actually spiritual things or spirituals. It just says spirituals. So it's talking about spiritual things, and the word gifts isn't even there. But we see these Corinthian believers who are desiring these manifestations, uh, the ones that were more showy, the ones who would elevate their prominence within the body of Christ. Okay, In chapter 13, we see that all of this could be diagnosed with one thing, and that, that is that they had lost their understanding of what it truly meant to love God and love one another. They had lost their perspective on the whole purpose of the gathering is to love and serve one another. He reminded them that this world is temporal and that what truly unifies us is the promise of eternity when the perfect comes and that love is superior superior and eternal. Love is superior and eternal. So you see, it was increasingly difficult to distinguish this church at Corinth from the pagan culture around them. And he, uh, they had embraced all of that stuff, all of those pagan practices within the local church. So chapter 14, folks, is no exception. It's a continued rebuke. So we will begin to break this down beginning in verse 1. If you'll look at verse 1 there, pursue love, pursue love yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. In chapter 13, Paul had just given uh, them that glorious description of what agape love looks like in the context of a local body of believers. He showed them, he outlined it, he described it. If you weren't here for that message, go back and find that, that message a couple weeks ago. They had been pursuing gifts for selfish gain, personal ambition, temporal, me-centered self-love. But Paul showed them, he said, I will show you a more excellent way. And of course, the more excellent way is loving and serving self-sacrifice in the body. And then he circles back to make that point. Walk in this more excellent way. Desire the gifts, but not in fleshly ambition. Instead, run after or chase, or pursue love. Do everything out of genuine, earnest love for God and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he adds at the end of this statement, but especially that you may prophesy. Especially that you may prophesy. Now, let's clarify this whole thing because there's also misunderstandings about what it means to prophesy. Uh, To prophesy does not mean uh, future-telling, okay? There were periods in history where it served that purpose of foretelling, which is now we can actually just look at God's Word and see what was prophesied. It's there in the Law and the Prophets, okay? Thus saith the Lord, through the Law and the Prophets, was simply God speaking through His chosen men, His chosen vessels, to proclaim His declared divine will beforehand. So prophecy in that regard is history, 
before it happens. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. It's going to happen. What he has decreed to take place will take place. He's just simply telling you through his men, this is what's going to happen long before it ever happens. Do you understand? All right, so there's that form of prophecy, sure enough, in Scripture, the foretelling. But again, that's not for today. The word prophecy actually means forth-telling. Forth-telling. To speak God's word before or in front of the congregation of people, specifically to preach God's word, the oracles of God. So in the early church, before they held the Bible, when Paul or Peter sent a letter, it was understood to be instruction directly from God because they were the apostles. Do you understand that? So when Paul penned a letter and he sends it to a church, it's automatically understood within that local body that it is in fact inspired, the inspired Word of God. Now, we know that Paul wrote letters that didn't survive, and so what we take from that is those are letters that the Lord did not mean to survive. So the ones that we have are the inspired Word of God, okay? So, Paul confirms this later in chapter 14. If you look at that passage there, verses 37 and 38, Paul writes this, pretty clear, pretty clear. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual... Let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone remains ignorant about this, he is ignored by God. So in other words, don't ignore these letters. They are the words of God. Give me an amen if you understand that. All right. So these letters of instruction were to be embraced and shared amongst all the churches like Uh, circulated amongst all the churches and they would copy the letters and they would send that letter on to the next church and then they circulated all throughout the body of Christ. And when this took place, they recognized it as divine revelation from God because it was the written by the apostolic authority of an apostle. It was affirmed by their office of of apostle. Do you guys understand that? Okay, so as the pastor or elders of the church would read that letter to the congregation, they would explain it line by line, and they would proclaim it to the body. Very much the same way as I'm doing right here with 1 Corinthians. I've got a letter from Paul written to Corinth, and it has been passed down through history. We know it's God's Word, and so we're going through it line by line, and guess what it's called? I'm proclaiming, I'm preaching the Word of God. Okay, So to proclaim the truth of God, whether it's the law or the prophets, or these new letters from the apostles, the epistles, to preach these things is to prophesy. Amen, if you understand. Okay. Well, what if God wanted to speak in the midst of a local church before they had received all of the writings of the New Testament, or in between receiving the new letters? Because when Paul wrote them, the church at Corinth would have only had a total of six letters of about 27 New Testament books. So the church at Corinth would have only had six books out of the 27 that you and I have. So if God wants to speak in those uh, in that, the intermission time between them receiving the letters, then you know we understand that the Bibles, uh, the books of the Bible essentially trickled out and they weren't complete until around 94 to 96 AD when John, the last apostle died and, and when he died after writing the revelation, the canon was closed. It was done. The Word of God was set. Jude says it was uh, delivered once and for all to the saints. So this is a really important point to note here. 
when the spiritual gift of tongues was being administered properly in the early church, it served the exact same purpose as to prophesy one of the apostolic letters. Do you understand? It had the same authority and supremacy because it was validated supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. So to speak in tongues under the control of the Holy Spirit, followed by an interpreter, was to say, thus saith the Lord, and everyone in that local body knew it. There was no doubt in anyone, anyone's mind or heart. So the real supernatural spiritual gift of tongues was a temporary sign gift, and as the new letters were written by the apostles and circulated by the churches, the balance of the temporary gifts shifted to the letters, to the Word of God, to the New Testament. Okay, And the spiritual gift of tongues became redundant, and it slowed and eventually ceased in the local church. And this is why we never see it mentioned again after this rebuke in Corinth around 55 AD. And you can understand why when you consider how easy it was for these folks to revert back to their pagan lifestyle, back to their pagan form of prayer. Remember, this was a very common thing in their culture. So that term used here in 1 Corinthians, glossolalia, to speak in a tongue, was not coined by the apostles. This was the term used often in that culture to speak of this pagan ecstasy form of worship as they would attempt to speak to a deity. It sounded like unintelligible jibber-jabber that no one could understand, of course, unless there was an interpreter. And what honestly makes this passage difficult is that there were likely several things going on regarding speaking in tongues within that local body. There were several issues taking place simultaneously. And Paul refers to all of them as speaking in tongues. For instance, there was the genuine gift, and it's likely we know that uh, Paul at one point said they were not lacking in any of the manifestations, any of the gifts. So it worked proper, properly to some degree in that church as God, as God intended it to be used, but also there were likely those who genuinely could speak another language, and then they would, in order to appear spiritual, would speak in their language, but then there wouldn't be an interpreter, and so that would be misusing the gift of tongues because it wasn't spirit-led, okay? Then there was perhaps someone with the gift of interpretation, and that one person could understand, but to the hearer, with no gift of interpretation, all they heard was unintelligible speech, and it was indistinguishable to the, to the hearer whether or not they were using the pagan form or using the true form, and that's why the need for the interpreter was absolutely vital. It was a must. So ask yourself just this simple question. Why would the Holy Spirit manifest in such a way that would contradict what Jesus taught previously when he taught his disciples not to pray in this manner, in that vain repetition. Why would, he, why would the Holy Spirit contradict what Christ had previously taught? Also, there were those who were flat out fabricating or counterfeiting the gift on their own for the sake of appearing more spiritual in that local body. And then there were those who were reverting, again, back to their pagan form of speaking in a tongue, and no one understood what they were saying. So it was chaotic, it was confusing, just like we learned about uh, the, the, the Lord's Supper and how they were abusing it. This church was a mess, y'all. It was a mess. There were various abuses taking place simultaneously, and rather than cover each specific one 
individually or calling them by different names. He deals with the broad issue of tongues. Paul uses a general explanation to convey an eternal truth. He's essentially saying whatever is going on, whichever of these abuses are in effect, if people don't understand and they don't know what you're saying, it needs to stop. Period. That's what Paul is saying. Look at verse 2. For the one who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now to take this verse and form a theology of a private prayer language, again would be to rip it completely out of its context. First, nowhere in Scripture are we ever told to pray unintelligibly in a way that even we cannot understand. Folks, to pray in the Spirit is to pray in alignment with the Holy Spirit. To pray in the Spirit is to pray enlightened by the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. To pray in the Spirit is to pray according to the promises of God's Word and God's eternal plan. In fact, Jesus taught us how to pray. And He didn't tell us to pray in, in glossolalia, to pray in tongues. And here's what I don't understand. Folks are actually suggesting that Jesus was teaching His disciples how to pray in a way that was not praying in the Spirit? If we only define praying in the Spirit as these tongues, and we then we're negating how Jesus Himself taught His disciples how to pray. That in order for you to actually be praying in the Spirit, it must be done in an unknown tongue. But I believe, folks, that's arrogant and presumptuous uh, to one-up how Jesus Himself taught us how to pray. Jesus always prayed using intelligible words. And He always prayed according to God's will. Considering the lack of any Scripture to support a private prayer language, and considering the actual context of this passage as a rebuke for their, their selfish behavior, considering that the pagan form of speaking in an ecstatic tongue was practiced in that very day, and because there is no... In the Greek, there's no definite article in front of the word God. And the definite article is essentially specifying who we're talking about. It's not specifying that this is actually God. Okay, And so in light of that immediate and historical context, some argue that the more accurate translation of this passage is one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to a God. For no one understands but by His Spirit He speaks mysteries. And even though some versions interpret that where it says by the Spirit, it interprets it, it capitalizes it as if it's the Holy Spirit. But it should be obvious that it's, it's not the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit would not instigate something that is counterfeit or ineffectual or disorderly in the church. And that's exactly what Paul is describing is going on here. If it's ineffectual if it is uh, disorderly, if it's causing confusion or chaos in the body, the Holy Spirit did not do it. I guarantee you that. This is either a person by His own Spirit, in other words, in His own control, for His own selfish purposes, speaking ecstatic tongues, or it is even perhaps by a false spirit. Okay? Now, I'm your pastor, and you don't have to believe everything I believe. But here's what I would encourage you to do. 
I would encourage you, as a matter of fact, I, was, I would encourage you not to believe everything I believe. I would encourage you to hold me accountable to the scripture as I've done many times. And if there are questions, you have questions about something I've taught, let's go to scripture. Let's figure out what's going on. Why is there a discrepancy? Why do we see things differently? Okay, so there are a lot of people in the body of Christ today that would differ with me on these passages. But all I can do is what uh, I feel the Scripture is actually saying. I have to go with what I believe the Scripture is actually saying, and then it's on you guys then to consider what I say as your pastor and go to the Scripture yourself and try to figure it out on your own and pray that the Lord would open your eyes. So I'm not looking for an argument. I just want to show you what I genuinely believe the Bible is saying here. But we know that if... if something is done, if it's chaotic, if it's uh, causing confusion, if it's meaningless, if it's purposeless, that it's not from the Holy Spirit. Because we know that when the Holy Spirit is genuinely involved, it bears fruit. It always bears fruit. Clearly, as I said, there's a lot of debate on this passage. And there's a lot of scholars that would disagree with me even. Um, but I have to side on what I feel is the, the overall context after we've looked through the historical context, context, after we've looked through the immediate context, what comes right before, what comes right after, I can't see this any other way. Let's look at verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and encouragement. So it's made crystal clear that tongues alone is useless when it comes to a positive form of edification in the local church body. And if someone cannot understand if it truly does not edify the body itself when practiced alone, it may result in an emotional high. It may even cause an emotional response in the person who's doing it for various reasons. But let's, let's talk about emotion for a second. Emotion that flows from gratification of the flesh, even when wearing a spiritual facade. So we're, we're being spiritual and we're emotional, but it's, it's simply coming from our, an emotional high, an in-the-moment kind of thing, okay? It's, you can call it spiritual and do spiritual things, but if it's not truly in the Holy Spirit, it's fleshly. It's self-gratifying. True edification comes from understanding, and understanding leads to knowledge of the truth. And the genuine godly emotion, genuine Godly emotion flows out of the knowledge of the truth of God's Word. We're edified in the true knowledge of God. And understanding truth can be incredibly moving, especially when you begin to grasp His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness. You can be as emotional as you like when it flows from a genuine understanding because we don't want to settle for cheap counterfeits in the body of Christ, just for the sake of having an emotional high. That is not what this is about. To settle for emotion alone cheats you out of a real revelation of who God truly is. And guys, I've grown up in the church and I did the church thing for years and there are things that I believed for many, many years, but five years ago, I had a revelation from Scripture, from God's Word, of who God really is, the unique uncreated, eternal majesty of an unchanging God 
who infinitely transcends everything that I ever thought I knew about Him. Everything I believed about Him to be true, it transcended everything because I was skimming the surface of God's Word. And when, when my eyes were open to these eternal attributes, considering that a holy, almighty God would call me by name, call Michael Branch by name, and send His Son to die on my behalf, to wipe away my sin and my rebellion and count me as righteous so that I could live in His presence eternally. When I consider that, how can I not be overwhelmed by that? How can emotion not overwhelm me? That kind of truth doesn't come from unintelligible jibber-jabber or cheap emotion. It's a revelation that only comes from the proclamation of the truth of God's Word, and that is what it means to prophesy. That's why Paul says what he says later in verse 24 and 25. I, it's up on the screen in case you want to look there. It's powerful what he says. This, the tongues is pointless. The priority, the priority is prophecy, to prophesy, to proclaim the declared truth of God's Word. Not tongues. Prophecy edifies the whole body. And it's very clear in this passage that tongues alone cannot. Verse 4, One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. You edify the whole church. And folks, verse 4 is not a pat on the back. It's not saying, hey, good job. There is a positive form of building up and there's a negative form of building up and there is a contrast here. If, if you look at 1 Corinthians 8, 10 through 11, 1 Corinthians 8, 10 through 11, Paul is writing once again, back in chapter 8, rebuking them still at that point, a few chapters before, 1 Corinthians 8, 10 through 11, he says, if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be edified, built up to eat things, sacrificed to idols? For though your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. You can edify someone to harm. Do you understand? You can edify someone to harm. And it's clear that you can edify or build yourself up to harm as well. So this person in this passage, in their selfishness, in an unloving act, is openly eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and along comes a weaker brother. And because of the careless witness, they edify the weaker brother in a harmful way, and it leads to their ruin. Alright? Edifying yourself is not the point here. God did not give spiritual gifts for the purpose of building yourself up. And the second someone uses a spiritual gift to build themselves up, they've already perverted the gift. God's intention for that spiritual gift is, is taken completely out of context. The whole point, the whole purpose is to love God and love others and serve others and build them up in your sacrificial love for them. In case I haven't spelled it out, in the context of the gathering of the local body, edifying yourself is bad and edifying the body is good. The whole body cannot be edified if there's chaos. They cannot be built up if there's confusion. 
There cannot be unity if there is a lack of understanding. And, and I've heard this so many times. We're not trying to put God in a box. We're not trying to put God in a box. I'll be quite honest with you. In relation to our understanding, God put Himself in a box. It's the shape of that book you're holding in your hand. Why would He do that? Why would God do that? Why would He define Himself to that extent to give us a revelation of Himself, His Son, and the Spirit in that book right there? Because He wants us to know. He wants you to be certain. He wants you to be able to pour over it and study it and get it inside your heart and your mind and let it renew your mind. That is God's Word in your hand. And He wants you to know. He wants you to be certain. We aren't trying to be dream crushers or just mess up everybody's childhood or the way they were brought up. That is not my intention at all. I'm not trying to limit God in any way. In fact, I believe God can do anything God wants to do. I believe that. He can heal. He can can do whatever He wants to do. But I believe that He has dictated in His Word how He operates in the local church and in the world today. And because we can know that, we can be witnesses of Him and His truth in the world. The church can be what Paul says the purpose of the church is, to be the support and the pillar of the truth. The support and the pillar of the truth. If it doesn't come from us, where's it going to come from? Who's going to speak the truth? No one. There is no truth. People don't know if they're male or female today. You know? There's no such thing as truth anymore. But we are it. The church is it. The church is who God has placed in the world to declare the truth. And it doesn't matter if it lands you in prison or if it lands you with a, a, in a guillotine. It doesn't matter. The point is your purpose as a follower and believer in the living Christ is to proclaim God's word until it kills you. That's our purpose. I don't doubt God. I don't doubt the power of God. He can do whatever he wants you whatever he wants to do. What I do doubt is the wicked hearts of men and our selfish ambitions. And we can't pretend that those things don't take place in the church. So as your pastor, I love you. And I love you enough that when something happens in the local body that I feel like is a threat to the other folks in the church, I will come to you. We will address it biblically. You can either repent and be brought back into the fellowship or we'll do what Scripture tells us to do. If there's a wolf among the flock, we're not going to cuddle with it. We're going to beat it over the head with a club. That's what you do with wolves, okay? Now, in, in the context of how we do it in the body of Christ, you escort them right out the door, all right? That's how it works. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, this is, this is very clear, 1 Corinthians 14.40, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And we do so not because we're trying to limit God. We're simply doing what He's told us to do in His Word. We do so because we honor and love Him, because we believe Him, and because we want to honor and love His people. We honor Him enough to do what He says. 
to obey him. Jesus says, why do you say you love me and you do not do what I have commanded? Come on. You don't just get to make stuff up. We don't just get to live however we want and say it's from God or it's a godly form of living. God's word dictates how the body of Christ is to operate in the world. And we do it because we love God and we love other people. Amen. Amen.